So we are in Luke chapter 15, and we are going to make our way, I believe, all the way to the very end, um, all 32 verses, and the title is Lost and Found. And we're going to see three different accounts of things that were lost, and then they were found, and the reaction that happened. The opening verses that we're going to see here in just a moment, they set the context for how we understand these three parables. If you don't get verses 1 and 2, it, you're going to have a difficult time understanding how to interpret and how to um, really even apply these parables to your life. So it's important that we, we take that time to establish it. But in these three parables, we're going to see some repeated themes. In these three parables, we're going to see the need for repentance. We're going to see the finding of the lost thing or the lost person. We're going to see the joy that accompanies the finding of that which was lost. And this chapter shows us how God really feels towards sinners. How does God view sinners? Um, we don't want angry religious people to define how God feels about sinners. We don't want that. We want the Lord to be able to speak. We don't want our condemning conscience to instruct us and inform us of how God thinks about sinners. What we want is we want to be taught by Jesus. And here's a great chapter to teach us how the Lord feels towards those that are lost. We begin reading at verses 1 through 3. And Jesus is going to be criticized once again. But this time, he's criticized for welcoming sinners. Then all the tax collectors... And the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, so because of that comment, right? So he speaks this parable. So that's the context, is their criticism of him and being in the midst of tax collectors and sinners, those that are the most notable. And... Um, uh, you know, what we have a couple of words here. One of them is um, they drew near. And, and this, this word for draw near is they were continually drawing near to him. I mean, it wasn't just like the odd one. It's like the sinners heard that there was a rabbi that was the real deal. That he wasn't playing games. He wasn't out for, you know... Uh, uh, self-promotion. He wasn't trying to, uh, you know, push some agenda of his. He, he loved people, and he touched people, and he welcomed sinners. He, they knew how the, the rest of the teachers would respond, but when they found out that there was a man that could perform miracles and knew the Word of God and called people to holiness, he didn't play around with sin. He called people out of sin, and yet they wanted to come to him. You know, this idea that comes into the mind as well, hey, if in the church, if we get too radical against sin, you know, sinners aren't going to want to come. Well, that doesn't seem to be a problem for Jesus. It was the exact opposite. They were coming to him, and there was this continual flow and stream of sinners that were making their way into the presence of the Lord. And in one sense, of course, by the Pharisee standards, this was totally trashing his reputation. Man, I don't know, that guy's always like hanging out with 
a prostitute here and a tax collector there and a drunkard there and a demon-possessed person. I don't know, what's up with this guy? And so they are criticizing him. And it says, this man receives sinners. Prosdexomai, receive in a friendly manner. It's not just, um, you know, knock, knock, knock. yeah, come on in. No, 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 it wasn't that. Jesus, and we'll see it in the parables, Jesus would see the sinners coming their way, maybe kind of a little sheepishly, maybe kind of slowly making their way up to him. And Jesus would, if you could just imagine, the word carries this idea of just kind of popping up out of your seat and going saying, yeah, come on, come on. I want to type in, I've been waiting for you. And that, so you have this dual problem. Number one, they're making their way to him. And then when they get close, Jesus is like saying, come on in. Sit down. Let's talk. What's going on? And so they couldn't stand that he was friendly, right? A friend of sinners. He was friendly to them. And so they bring this this criticism against him. Um, You have these two that are there. You have the sinners, and then you have the Pharisees and the scribes, and they are looking down because they don't think that they have any need for him. They look at the needy group who wants to come to the creator of the universe, the Messiah, and spend time with them. And they're looking and saying, these people are terrible. What's wrong with them? But these were beginning to figure something out. It doesn't matter if I'm a tax collector. It doesn't matter if my my wife is demon-possessed. It doesn't matter if I'm a prostitute. It doesn't matter if I'm even a thief. I can come to this man and I know that he's going to receive me so that and they were coming. They knew what he was going to say. They knew that he was going to call them to repentance. He, they knew that he would say, go and what? Sin no more. They knew the message. So it's not that Jesus is, has you know, he's light on sin. No, it's not that at all. But they still were wanting to come to him. They understood 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, when you're in sin and you're in deep sin and the society looks around you and say, yeah, you're in deep sin. Or the religious community says, that's deep, deep sin. And they don't, they can begin to feel like there's no hope for them. If all they ever hear is, yeah, you're not welcome here. This can begin to have a really negative impact, and they don't want to come. They don't feel like they're welcomed. And so this is an important chapter for us to really calibrate, um, first, who, who the Lord is, but we're to reflect his character and nature. And, and this should tell us how to, to behave, how to treat them. You know, human religion is a system of belief that tries to relate to God apart from the aid of God. And that always ends in failure. And these individuals, they, they were big on their own accomplishments. They, they, were, they were proud of all that they did. They are going to be like the prodigal son's older brother who will say at some point to his father, I've always done the right thing. Now, that's the Pharisee talking, okay? He represents the Pharisee, and they had all of these things that they thought they did, and yet their heart was a thousand miles from God. It was so far from God, they were going to kill the Son of God. And so there is this sense of, I've got it right, I've got it all together. And it's something that we need to 
to be mindful of. Think of, this is, this is the heart that the Lord wants. I have a couple of prayers. One of them is from Scripture that we're going to read. It's in Luke chapter 18. It's just a few chapters over. And another one is from, from history. But uh, it's from the first century. Not such a good prayer. But let's look at this. Luke 8, 18, verse 9 through 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Okay, that, that's what we're dealing with here. That they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These people were coming to them, to the Lord, and they were, they were humbling themselves. A first century prayer um, kind of gives you a sense of, uh, just it's a reiteration really of what we just read there of that pharisaical pride. And this, this prayer goes like this. I thank you, Lord, my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the sanctuary and not with those who sit on the street corners. I rise early, they rise early. I rise to attend to the word of Torah and they attend to futile things. I exert myself, and they exert themselves. I exert myself to receive a reward, and they exert themselves to receive no reward. I run, and they run. I run to life and the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. So again, it's that same proud heart that says, I'm above, I've got it all together, and that's why they're looking at Jesus as this stream of sinners are making their way in, and Jesus is popping up and just saying, come on, come on over here. Let's sit, let's talk, what's going on? And that was the heart. They're a lot like Jonah, aren't they? What is it about Jonah and how he viewed sinners, the Assyrians? Did he want to go and preach to them? Did he want to see them repent of their sins? He didn't want to see them repent because they were sinners and he was a righteous Israelite. They needed to be judged and his people needed to be justified. And so he, when he was called to go and preach, he knew the character and nature of God so well that if he went and he preached the message to them to repent and to get their hearts right with God, that if they were broken and they called out to the Lord, that God would receive him. And that was just too much to swallow. To think about these dirty, rotten Assyrians having the chance to repent and not experiencing judgment would ruin his day. So he's like, I'm not going to go preach to these people. So he got on a boat and he headed in the other direction. It didn't work out so well, you know what happened. So he gets to restart his journey again, but with, you know, kind of probably looking pretty pasty, no hair. You can imagine. Imagine he would have been sunburned easily along the whole journey, having been in the stomach of a great fish for three days, and comes on out and goes and makes his way. 
And when they repent, he gets mad. So I knew it, God. I knew it, I knew it. This is why I didn't want to preach to them, because I know you're patient, and I know you're long-suffering, and I know you love to show mercy. This is why I didn't want to preach, because I don't want to see people like that getting right with you. I want them to get your judgment. And they are of that same spirit, but worse, because at least Jonah did it. And then, of course, that whole story as the book of Jonah ends, right? There's this, this uh, bush, this shrub that grew up real fast, a weed of some sort, and it provided shade. He wanted shade. That's why I said I think when he came out, he was, all of his hair was gone, and his skin was probably really sensitive to sun. And he's wanting the shade to get under it. This thing grows up fast, and he's under it, and then a worm comes and eats it, and the thing wilts, and it, it falls away, and it dies, and he gets mad. And he's like, you're something, Jonah. You're more concerned about this plant that's going to die than you were about these people that were going to die. That is the spirit that we have here with these Pharisees and that Jesus is going to confront. They held the position that said, I'm okay without any instruction, without any fellowship with that guy, Jesus of Nazareth. The sinners and tax collectors are like, we got to get to this guy. He has what we need. And indeed he does. Acts 4.12 says, there is, uh, nor is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That name is the name of Jesus. There's only salvation in the Lord. And these sinners had figured it out. But these religious hypocrites had not figured it out. And so they came and they humbled themselves. And Matthew 9, verses 10 through 12 says, Now it happened, as Jesus said at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard that, and he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The thing is, everybody's sick. But it was the tax collectors and the sinners they were the ones that had figured out that they were sick and they needed to come and they needed to spend time with Jesus. And so, as that as the backdrop in the interaction, Jesus gives these three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep in verses 4 through 7. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Now, everybody needs repentance. But these guys who were proud... They are the ones who think they don't need to repent. That's who, they're the Pharisees. The, the, the lost sheep, this is the tax collectors. These are the prostitutes. These are the sinners. And of course, heaven is rejoicing over their repentance. So here we see that Jesus doesn't just welcome sinners. It's like Jesus is saying, you're bothered that I welcome sinners? I've got news for you. I do more than welcome them. I go after them. You don't like that they, are, they can come and find me? Well, then this is really going to upset you. I go in search of sinners. 
I want to encounter them. I want to meet them. The shepherds search for that one, or the shepherd searches for that one lost lamb, that one lost sheep. And, you know, sheep are known for being helpless animals. Um, it's really the shepherd who defends them. They have no natural defenses. They're not known to be the brightest, and they often are getting themselves in trouble. And so when a shepherd knows that one is out of the fold, he knows that that one is in grave danger. And so he leaves. Presumably other shepherds are there as well. And he goes after this one. And, and that what we know is that you know, this was about the size of a, you know, a normal flock. And so they could all relate to this story. And maybe you're like, yeah, I can't relate to the story. I've never lost a, you know, a little sheep, a little lamb. Have you ever lost a dog? You know, yeah, I'm sure, you know, some of you have and, you know, the panic that gets in the house and the tears start to go and start to cry. And I can still remember to this day, Rebecca was out in California. I think she was at a pastor's wives retreat as Wednesday night. I had all three of my kids and um, they were younger and we couldn't find our dog and he wasn't there. And um, so we start looking as a Wednesday night and we started looking and I was getting later and later and I called up. Um, I'm like, okay, guys, we're just going to have to go home. We'll look later. You know, it's just like they were just coming undone. I, I called up um, Pastor Joe, and I said, Joe, you got to take this. I can't find the dog. My kids are losing their mind. You know, and um, we've got to find this dog. And um, so we, we ended up finding him and stuff. But, but the, you know, when he was found, I mean, there was, there was so much joy um, I was glad to, you know, find him, but my kids were just, they were thrilled to, to, you know, wrap their arms around that. It was a dirty, stinky, messy, gross dog when he came home, but they didn't care, you know, and, and I didn't either. I was, I was glad to have him back. And, and this is, this is the story. This is something that maybe we relate to a little bit more than a, a lost sheep. But Jesus not only receives, but he seeks after them. And we see the tender care. He picks up the lamb and he carries the lamb in verse 5, right? He, he doesn't just kind of throw rocks at it and hit it with sticks all the way back to the fold. He picks up that lamb and he carries it. And the Lord has done that for you. And he's done that for me. And he's gone after us when we were lost and we were out there all alone and we weren't in his fold. And he comes and he... He brought us in, in, a, in a very literal way. He carried the cross, which is in the way of carrying us. And each and every one of us has been picked up and put on the shoulders of the Lord because he loves you. He not only welcomes you, he seeks after you. He seeks after me. In verses 6 and 7, there's joy over finding this lost sheep and and he talks about the joy that's associated with finding uh, this, the sheep. But then he just brings it back home. And he says, you know, you guys are upset that I sit and talk with sinners. Well, let me tell you, heaven throws a party when a sinner gets found. Heaven is excited about it. Heaven is not wringing their hands and saying, what are we going to do with this person? Heaven is simply rejoicing. I, and this is a theme throughout Scripture. Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Write it down. Isaiah 62, 5. 
Yeah, you need to remember that the next time you're feeling like God doesn't want you and God doesn't care about you. How much does he care about you? As much as a bride, as a, as a, as a groom, looks at the end of the aisle and he sees his bride coming. Love doing weddings. I've done a, done a lot of weddings. I personally have had one, but I've performed a lot of ceremonies. And I, um, I always take the time when the bride comes down to look at her and I look at, you know, I got the best seat in the house. And I know, and look at him. And I watch these two looking at each other. And there is definitely joy in the groom over his bride. Well, the Lord looks at you. We are the bride of Christ. And he rejoices over you. Zephaniah 3.17. And I believe this is going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. And you think of the, the long history of Israel that, you know, in rebellion and repentance and rebellion and repentance and rejecting Jesus and all the rest. But there's going to come a time when they're going to call upon him and Jesus will come back at the second coming and he will rescue them. He will put his foot on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. He'll walk down and he'll walk right up to the Temple Mount and there he will rescue. He will have rescued Israel. And I personally believe that as Jesus is coming off the Mount of Olives and down to the Temple having finish this, this rescue mission of the nation of Israel, both in the moment of the great tribulation, but of their long history. It says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, I may be wrong, but I'm going to be watching closely to see if Jesus doesn't, after he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, break out into a song of just singing and rejoicing. It's like a finally kind of, finally you have come and you have received me. We know of singing to the Lord, but do you know of the Lord singing over you? He sings over you. He rejoices over you. This is what Jesus is telling us, right? Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our, of our faith, who for the, what? joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He rejoices over you. He went to the cross because he knew that he would rescue you. This is Jesus going to the cross is Jesus going out to look for the Lamb. And there's joy associated with finding the Lamb. And He found me and He found you. And that journey began at the cross. What a contrast this is to these religious Pharisees who are sitting around and picking on Jesus and picking on these people and going back and forth. Look at this guy. Who does he think he is? He's a, he's a sinner himself. He probably goes to her. He probably is getting a cut from the tax collectors. He probably, I bet he's going to be a tax collector. Oh, you can imagine all of the insults that were being hurled his way. And he's just looking at him. Yeah, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you this story. And he told him that. And then he goes into a next one. It's the parable of the lost coin. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. 
And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we have a lamb and now we have a coin. What is this coin? Well, the Greek here is drachma, and that is a, a Greek um, coin that would be equivalent to, um, you're more familiar, if, as we've gone through the Gospels, with a denarius. It's the same kind of measure of money. One is Roman, one is Greek. It's a day's wage. She has 10 days worth of wages, and she's lost one of those coins. Now, that doesn't seem like, um, you know, the end of the world, but, you know, it's a big deal to her, which has caused some to say that this may have actually been a poor woman's dowry and that these ten drachmas would have been fitted together in a piece of jewelry that would have been around her neck or as a headdress and that she lost a coin that was more than just a coin. It was associated with her dowry. Now, we can't be definitive about that, but there's many who think that this is the case. So you can put whatever weight you want on that drachma, I guess. Just a day's wage, or maybe there was some other sentimental value. But whatever the case, all the activity of the house stops. Nothing's, in, nothing's taking place. This woman gets the lamp. She begins to look. She begins to sweep. Um, you know, because the homes back then, they would have had, you know, pavers, if you will, and things could fall down in the cracks. They didn't grout it. So they would fall down in the cracks and they would get lost. Um, in reading and studying for this, one thing, one place that archaeologists love to look um, when they're going through buildings is to look in the cracks of the stones because they often will find, what do you think? coins and the crack. So why is that significant? Well, if they find a coin in the crack of the floor, they just got a newspaper with a date on it. If you, so that now they can date it. It's like, all right, the coin is here. We know that these coins were minted in this time frame, and now we can. So this is a very common, this is you know, a common thing that archaeologists know, and they look for, and they find these coins in the crevices where they fall down, they get lost. These homes were not well lit, so it was easy for that to happen. But she starts sweeping. She's waiting to hear the jingle of that drachma, and then she would be able to, to find it. And when she finds it, um, her response is all kinds of joy. Now, uh, she calls everybody together. She calls her friends and her neighbors together. Rejoice with me. So for me, it seems like there's got to be something a little bit more attached to just the coin. But, you know, maybe not. But she wants everybody to come together. So she's calling people over to her house. Doesn't say it. But it would seem like she probably is going to be hospitable. And she's going to begin to have some kind of refreshments for them. All these people are coming over. And that's a speculation as well. But one, um, one author writes this. He is quoting from another author. He says, Schweitzer quotes the comment of a boy in a confirmation class when he heard this parable. And he says, what a dumb woman. She spent more money on the party than the coin was worth. Exactly. From an economic point of view, the woman's response is folly. The parable is not about economics, however. It is about God's grace. 
Perhaps the folly of God's grace that he seeks the lost until they are found and once found celebrates the recovery and abandon. The joy of God has no price tag. And if you think about it, look at the price he paid to find you, to find me. That the Son of God was put on the cross. Was that a good deal? (laughs) That was not a good deal. But the joy of finding you and finding me and finding us drove him well beyond the point of that which was economical, but that which was absolutely necessary for our salvation. And so there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when I got saved and when you got saved. And maybe it'll be tonight that you come to the Lord or a loved one you know will come. But heaven doesn't sit by idly. Heaven doesn't sit by and go, eh, okay, another one, that's good. No, heaven rejoices And really, the point is, the Lord himself is rejoicing. Now we come to the the most uh, well-known of the parables, the lost and found stories. It's the parable of the lost son. So we begin in verse 11 here. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to him, his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So now we get the picture of two sons. And the younger son wants to go to the big city. And he asks for his portion of the inheritance. Now, I did a lot of reading, and you probably are aware of this as well, but to do this was such a disgrace. It was such a shameful thing to do. Um, Because these things would not be passed on until a father died. And so essentially what he's saying is, I wish you were dead, just give me the money. It was complete rudeness. It was a complete disrespectful thing to take place. And so he gets it, he cashes in whatever it was, and he's off to the big city. And once he gets there, he's going through the wasteful living. He's partying. His older brother's going to talk to us about the prostitutes that he was joining himself to. And yet a famine came. Isn't that the way it is? Sin never anticipates the certain consequences that are going to come and are going to dry up the so-called joy and and life and the fun and the party. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to come. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season, but in its end, what you reap is corruption. You reap death. 
And so he's living this out. I mean, in his mind, i got plenty of money. Everybody wants to be around me. This is great. But then the famine hits, and he is in, the, in, a, in, a, in a terrible place. And so the scene worsens. He finds himself in the place as a, as a Jew taking care of the swine. And he's looking at them, and he's watching them as they eat. And he's in a, this, this place. He's like, man... I'm looking at what the pigs eat, and I want to eat their food. But my servants back home, they have a better place with my father than I have here. One reading says, when Israelites are reduced to carob pods, then they repent. This is a rabbinical writing. It says, this young man has sunk to the lowest possible state. So, I mean, he has come to the bottom. He is tending the pigs of a Gentile, and he's longing for their food. And so he is reduced to this place. And now repentance is, can come. And, and that happens. And it's a hard thing to watch when you're waiting for people to repent. And they're out there in that wasteful living. You know, sometimes people say, I'm afraid to tell the Lord just to do whatever it takes to get them. Because I'm afraid something bad's going to happen to them. That mentality fails to understand the character and nature of God. That mentality, that thinking, fails to understand Luke chapter 15. The Lord is ready to receive them, and he's searching for them. God is not wanting to inflict unnecessary pain and misery onto somebody's life just because he can. You never have to be worried about saying, Lord, do whatever it takes to get this one. Go after them. Because he's, he's not wanting to harm them. But, you know, people will reach the bottom. And this guy has reached the bottom. And he has enough sense. He comes to his senses and says, i got to get home to my father. And he does. You know, you may be thinking, yeah, I know somebody that has come to the bottom. And now they're still digging. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, where is the bottom for them? And each person is different. But keep praying for them. Keep asking the Lord to go after them. But maybe you're that sinner. Maybe you're that person that has hit the bottom and you're thinking there's no place for me in the house of God. There's no place for me in the, you know, in the kingdom of the Lord. The Lord would not want a person like me. Well, look at what the Lord has to say. Don't allow you know, mean religious people and don't allow your own condemning conscience to define what God wants. God wants you. How much does he want you? Well, an incredible amount. So much that he's willing to go to the cross and die there for you. So verses 17 and 18, he comes to his senses. And I pray that if you're in that place where you're out there and wasteful living, sinful living, that you would come to your senses and you would come to the Lord. So verse 20, and he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, almost interrupts him. He doesn't even let him finish. And he says, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found, and they began to be merry. The father is compassionate, and he throws off all cultural protocols. And as an elder man, he begins to run. I don't know what it was, but they say that in this culture, you would never see an older man run. It just was undignified. But dad, the father, sees the son afar off. And he comes. It's that same welcoming that Jesus was doing to the sinners when they accused him. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I do welcome them. You're absolutely right. But it's worse than just welcoming them. I get up and I run after them. I know it doesn't fit your senses. And you think it's crazy that me, uh, a rabbi, would go after them. But it's exactly what the heart of the Father is like. And so he comes running to them. And he has compassion on him. He begins to kiss him. He wants him to know, I'm ready to receive you. I'm ready. And this is the heart of the Lord. You just have to make a move towards God. And God will respond to you. And he will come running to you. He embraces him. He puts clothes on him. He gives him shoes. He gives him the sandals. And then he gives him the robe. But what kind of robe does he give him? Anybody notice what kind of robe it was? The best robe. The best robe. What does that mean? It's, 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 it means the most important, the most prominent robe. Let that sink into your heart and your mind. When you think of coming back to the Lord, it's like, okay, he'll receive me. Where, where do you think he's going to receive you to? Well, you come in, but you stay in the back row for a little while because we're going to test you. And we're going to see what you're really like. We're going to see if you're really repentant. We're going to see if you really have changed your heart and you've really changed your mind. And once we know for certain that you have, then you can come out of the servants' quarters and then you can begin to come in. But it's going to be a long time before you ever get that best robe again. Before you get that prominent robe. Before you get that robe that is the most important robe. You've got to prove yourself. That is not Christianity. And yet it is so ingrained in us. And it is most often seen in the way we treat a brother or sister who's returning to the Lord. How do I really know? I don't know. How do you really know? When you figure that out, you let me know. How do you really know? How do you really even know that about your own self? But the reality is this, when the father went running, and the father is our heavenly father, when he goes running to a sinner and he embraces him and brings him in, does he think that person will ever sin again? The answer is yes. He knows that that person, me, you, will sin again, and yet he still says, give him the best robe. Now that, 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 that's bothersome to some of us. It's like, well, you've got to make certain before you start welcoming sinners in that they really are got it all together. Okay, give me a verse for that. Give me an example in the life of Jesus where he did that with people. He, he was hard on the religious hypocrite, but on the person who was broken and beating their chest, he says, that person goes home justified. That person. And so we struggle with this idea of flinging the doors wide open. He gives them the robe. He gives them the ring. The place of responsibility. 
Rings, you know, it was a, it spoke of authority. It spoke of position. He gives him that place, and he says, it is party time. How do you know he's really repentant? He's here. He's here. She's here. We're going to celebrate. What a beautiful picture we have. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 says, But God demonstrates his love, his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to stop being sinners to die for us. He came to us when we were still out, afar off. Much more than, I mean, if that's the case, if Jesus died for us when we were sinners, this is an argument from, um, from the lesser to the greater, or from the greater to the lesser. It says, how much more then, having been justified by his blood, will we be, sh- will we be uh, saved from the wrath through him? For if when we were enemies we were reconciled, to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I mean, if he died for us when we're sinners, this greater problem than this lesser kindness is certainly going to come to us. And we struggle with that in our own life, and we struggle with that as we deal with other people that come back into our life. We struggle with this. Well, do you really think I'm saved? Oh, I know you're saved. Well, do you think that? No, I don't think you should get too excited about Jesus. I, I mean, I was a little bothered by that person. You know, they just got saved or came back to the Lord last week and their hands were lifted like really high. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they, they seemed a little too exuberant in worship. I don't know if they should be conducting themselves like that. I think they should probably be a little more somber for a little while. Got a verse for it? You don't have a verse for it. It's not to make light of sin, and of course Jesus is not, but this is his story as he talks about the worst of the worst. And he's like, we're going to have a party, and we're going to bring him in, and I'm going to celebrate this. (laughs) Well, verses 25 through 33, as we wrap it up, here's what we've been talking about. Now his older son was in the field. Now, the older son is the Pharisees here. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And the idea of plead with him it's not one time. It's, a, it's an imperfect verb, which means it was a, a continual pleading. You know, um, again, I've talked, we talked a lot about this. An aorist verb would be a picture. Boom. One moment in time. This happened in the past tense. Got a snapshot. Look what happened. An imperfect verb is you got the camera going and you're, you're, you're videoing it. And now when you replay it, you're watching something in the past, but you're watching the scene unfold over and over and over again. That's the word that's used. That's the tense that's used here. As that he's pleading with him. It doesn't make just a single effort. And so the Lord would plead with all of us and say, welcome them in. Come in and rejoice 
with what's going on in their life. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. And here's that mentality of that Pharisee that's saying, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner. I'm so perfect. I'm so righteous. They're terrible. They're miserable. But Lord, I'm so glad that I'm not like them. It's that same self-righteousness that they are taking to themselves, but the Lord does not look at that that way. And so he says, you know, why haven't you thrown a party for me? Why aren't you doing that? And of course, Jesus would have gladly thrown a party for a Pharisee that would have repented, but they thought there was no need to repent. They thought they had no need of Jesus, and so they only came to criticize him. Look at this next line, verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours came, as soon, to put that in some other words, the party's happening too soon. You gotta wait. You've got to test him. You gotta make certain that this is real. And, and for him, the eldest is crying out, too soon, Dad, too soon. You've got to make certain that this guy's really the, the real deal here. And the father is pleading with him, saying, no, you need to welcome him now. You need to receive him now. This is the one who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed a fatted calf for him? What's wrong with you? And um, what does he say in verse 30? He says, but as soon as my brother came, he doesn't say my brother, does he? As soon as this son of yours, I don't have anything to do with this guy. I'm done. He's dead to me. It might be your son. It's not my brother anymore. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right. It is right. It is right. The right this party was the right thing to do. The best robe was the right thing to do. The ring was the right thing to do. Giving him sandals was the right thing to do. Getting everybody together in the house, that was the right thing to do, son. It's right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother. Not so fast. It's your brother, and he's come home. Was dead and is alive again. Was lost and is found. And so this shows us the heart of God towards sinners to the person who's coming to the Lord for the first time, to the person who's returning. And it's like, well, what if we make a mistake? I don't know. What if we do make a mistake? What if we welcome a, somebody who's showing signs of repentance and it ends up that they fell again or a problem took place? What, what happens then? I mean, is there like some special penalty for us doing that? Is there like a, some, you know, shame and embarrassment that, that we have to go through and, you know, we got to, what's the problem? I love what Pastor Chuck used to say. He goes, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace, not the law. So if I'm going to be found making a mistake with a person, it's going to be that I'm extending the grace of God to them. And, and, and this is what we see in this whole chapter. 
And maybe you're that person who's thinking about coming back and saying, well, I've been, I've been in the far land a long time. And, you know, I didn't just look at the food of the pigs. I have eaten the food of the pigs. It's too late for me. I mean, it's just, I mean, I know what you're saying is great stuff for, you know, mild sinners, but not for sinners like me. My life's been consumed. It's been destroyed. Well, the prophet Joel has something to say to you. Joel 2, verse 25. And the Lord is speaking. I will restore to the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts. What's the deal with all the locusts? It doesn't matter how your life has been destroyed. It doesn't matter what, the destru- what, what kind of destruction has come to your life. It doesn't matter if it's this locust or that. It doesn't matter what type of sin it was that has consumed you. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. That is the heart of the Lord. He'll restore what has been destroyed. And lastly, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You want the kindness and the grace and the blessing of the Lord upon your life? Then come and eat. Come. The Lord says, come on. Well, I'm a sinner. That's all right. He's going to make you clean. He's already gone out to get you. He's, He's on his way out right now. You see him coming for you. Come to him. How do I see him coming to me? Because he came and he died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And he's inviting people to come and to receive his forgiveness. So hopefully you can have this moment where you will come to your senses and you will run into the arms of the Lord because you know he's waiting to embrace you. He's not gonna, you're not going to go running up to him and right when you get there, boom, get a stiff arm and go straight to the ground. It's like, time out. Got to check you out first. Got to make certain. Got a few questions for you. He doesn't do that. He embraces us and he welcomes us in. And so I pray that you see the the heart and the grace and the kindness of the Lord towards you. Those of us that have been saved, reflect upon that kindness and that grace. And maybe you're a person that's already experienced that kindness of grace and yet you're out there again. Come back to the Lord. He loves you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth and your grace that shows us that you indeed are a friend of sinners. You are one that sits down. You welcome us over and over again. And Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, will take the Scriptures that we've just read. We know they are living. We know they are powerful. And we pray that they would just be applied to our heart and we would experience the reality of who you are. You're a God of grace and your mercy. You're the God that says, come, let us reason together. You call those that are 
that are heavy laden, that are worn out. He said, come to me and I will give you rest.